Say hello to a new era of mental health care. Cerebral is here to help you achieve your mental wellness goals with professional therapy and medication management support. 100% online. You'll experience the all-new Cerebral way, an innovative approach to mental wellness designed around you. You'll get a personalized treatment plan from a therapist, prescriber, or both in a safe and judgment-free space. Your cerebral therapist or prescriber will outline a customized plan with clear milestones along the way, so you can get to feeling your best. With Cerebral, you're not alone in your mental health journey. We're here to empower you to live a fulfilling life. So take that first step towards a brighter future and sign up today at Cerebral.com slash podcast and use code ACAST to get 15% off your first month. Offer only valid on monthly plans. Other exclusions may apply. Offer ends July 31st, 2024. See site for details. Botox Cosmetic, out of botulinum toxin A, FDA approved for over 20 years. So talk to your specialist to see if Botox Cosmetic is right for you. For full prescribing information, including boxed warning, visit BotoxCosmetic.com or call 877-351-0300. Remember to ask for Botox Cosmetic by name. To see for yourself and learn more, visit BotoxCosmetic.com. That's BotoxCosmetic.com. The Michael Reed Show Podcast. Tune in weekdays from 9 on LMFM. To contact us, email now. Michael at LMFM.ie Good morning and welcome to the programme. On the show this morning, the Joint Committee on the Implementation of the Good Friday Agreement met yesterday to discuss workers' rights and the constitutional changes required with members of ICTU, the INTO and SIPTU. New research has found that 40% of healthcare workers say they would worry at least a little about drawing blood from a person living with HIV. The Thornisher says the government is set to take strong action on the use of vapes. It follows indications made by the Health Minister there will be soon a clampdown on flavours and single-use products. Over two-thirds of waste in general waste bins could have been placed in the recycling or organic waste bins. The Environmental Protection Agency today publishes the latest National Municipal Waste Characterisation Project. We'll have more on that. And Make Way Day is a campaign that brings the disability and wider community together to consider the needs of people with disabilities in public spaces. Don't forget you can contact us by phone on WhatsApp 086 1800 658 or email michael at lmfm.ie. First this morning, the Joint Committee on the Implementation of the Good Friday Agreement met yesterday to discuss workers' rights and constitutional change. Members of SIP2, ICTU and the Irish National Teachers' Organisation attended the meeting, which was chaired by Committee Cahirlach, Fergus O'Dowd. Before coming on air, I spoke to the Fine Deputy and began by asking him what the purpose of the meeting was. We're looking at basically what a future Ireland might look like, notwithstanding the different views that different members of our committee may have. I just want to say that uh, you know we, we have all of the parties in Northern Ireland participate in our weekly, sorry, in our weekly meetings, other other than the unionist parties, which is obviously very regrettable. So we we try and hear all points of view. And yesterday, the teachers, um, obviously John Boyle from the INCO was very strong on, on the issues that he raised particularly in relation to teachers' pay, which is what you start off in Northern Ireland with half to pay, you would if you're a teacher in the South, which is a, an appalling difference. And the issues that would arise if we had an all-island teaching council, what would be the, the key points to develop? So it was very useful and a very, very worthwhile meeting. So 
to do something like that would necessitate some form of constitutional change, presumably. It would, but at the same time, you could have convergence. For instance, uh, the point that he made was the Irish Teaching Council, that is in the South, that what we should be looking at is if you are qualified in the Northern Ireland as a graduate, and if you have Irish, you should automatically be fast-tracked into teaching the South, should you wish to do so. Um, and that would be something that, 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 that could be very simply done. Uh, also, the issues around about... Um, you know, if you're a teacher in the north, you know, you'll, you know, if you if you don't have Irish, and if you'd like to teach in the south, there should be free classes for you to upgrade your Irish. And also, if you were, it's a point I raised, if you were a teacher in the north who from a different uh, non-nationalist background, you know, we should find practical and and, and significant ways of a, of getting you into teaching in the south if that's your wish. There are things we can do as it stands. And obviously, if we if we all work together, north and south, you know, as you said, you, you, you'd have a great, uh, you know, could have a great future. Uh, you know, uh, you know that it's going to be difficult for us all to imagine it. But um, the convergence of salaries across the public sector would be a big issue. You know, the rights of workers, north and south, would be a big issue. But it's, we have to plan for the future, and there will be a vote at some stage. So we ha- we're, what we're looking at the practical okay. side of the changes we could make. Presumably there is appetite amongst the stakeholders you met with for these changes to be implemented. There are a raft of measures which could happen, albeit slowly, but is there a willingness on the part of the government here and other individuals to push this across the line? Very, very much so. I think that the, the government... Uh, the support of all the parties, we, we have the shared island unit, and one of the points yesterday was that we should set up in the shared island unit an issue in relation to, you know, the, the convergence of teachers' uh, salaries, number one, teachers' rights, teachers' training, and all of that. So there is, of course, there is, and obviously, you know, it's what everybody's talking about, but, you know, it's, it, it'll only happen if we, if everybody in the North can embrace it, and particularly the people who speak to us least, which is the unionist community. And that's very important to stress that point. So we must engage unionism. Our committee is about trying to do that. Uh, and that is where our direction is. Mm-hmm. OK, uh, well, 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 will you touch on, on, on a crucial element of this? And this is the um, political support that will be required north of the border in order to push this through. Now, given the political situation or lack thereof in the north this is is going to be a difficult proposition it's a very difficult proposition the good friday agreement there for 25 years but the last two years there's been no executive in northern ireland there's nobody to make decisions there's nobody to lobby and obviously the english government hasn't got the same interest uh, in the north particularly under this administration the tory administration so it is a huge issue it's a huge challenge um, and that's why we need to improve particularly the relationships between the British and the Irish government. The two prime ministers have improved relationships, but they need to go further. Our civil service, our ministers need to meet, meet more often. And our north-south north bodies are not working right now. So this is hugely damaging uh, to peace in the long run if we don't get the executive up and running. That's a decision, unfortunately, which hasn't been made as yet. And I think myself, it's time that we looked at, is there another way that all of the Assembly members elected for the Northern Assembly, if a majority of those could agree to go forward 
even if even if some parties don't want to do that, um, I think that's you know if the majority of people want to work together, why can't they work together? And I think that's a big issue now for discussion. Okay, Deputy, then let's just go back to what you want to try and implement along with the other unions and stakeholders that should be meeting around this. Given yeah, as we spoke as we spoke about the political situation in the north. This is so far at the bottom of their agenda. It's not going to see the light of day for a very long time. Yeah, you're, 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 you're right, unfortunately, as things stand. But there is a momentum building up. And the longer you have the vacuum, a power vacuum, the more likely in the medium term that the wrong people will step into that vacuum and cause increased division in our communities. And it's not so long ago since we had, you know, a police, a significant attempted murder of a police officer in the north. And, uh, you know, I understand that there are rumblings in many communities right now that nobody welcomes. It's only practical on-the-ground solutions and working together will make the difference. And that's why Jeffrey Donaldson has a huge decision to make now. Um, whether he'd make it or not, I don't know. But if he doesn't make it, you know, the North is going to drift. And the last thing the unionists want is actually greater involvement of the Irish government in what is happening in Northern Ireland. But what alternative will there be, you know, if there's no executive and people need support, they need decisions, uh, you know, they need to look at a future that's working. So, you know, there's a big decision to be made by Geoffrey Donaldson. Okay. Give him plenty of space to make it. Let's talk a little bit about the Legacies Bill, which received royal assent earlier this week and has now entered into law. There is a slew of court cases being taken by individuals and by groups. But from the perspective of the Irish government, and there's been talk about this, the Taoiseach, the Taunish, that raises with Joe Biden during the week, during their visit to New York at the United Nations. But as we, as a government... Are we going to take action in Europe? Are you aware of moves afoot in relation to that deputy? Yes, absolutely. Our committee has passed a resolution uh, requesting the government to do just that. I fully support such an action uh, because our basic human rights being challenged here by the British government. Uh, but what the government has said is that they're getting legal advice from the Attorney General and they will have that advice shortly. And I would expect uh, that it will be, yes, we have to do it because if we don't, the rights of people whose family members on all sides have been murdered by paramilitaries, by the IRA, by lifeless paramilitaries, uh, people in the British Army murdered some people as well. So why can't those rights be vindicated in the due process of law, in the right to have a, a you know, in the right to have a court case, in, in the right to have accountability? It's not that these people, uh, you know, there isn't evidence against them. There is very significant evidence against them. And I believe the people who have the most evidence against them are the ones who are going to get off. Because if they say, hands up, I did this murder, but if you don't prosecute me, I'll tell you all about it. I think you know that's really insulting victims mm-hmm. on all sides. So hopefully, hopefully the government will go ahead with that. OK, can I just quote you what uh, the Northern Ireland Secretary, Chris Heaton-Harris, had to say, and perhaps you might comment on it. And he said... A significant milestone as the government aims to deliver on our pledge to deliver better outcomes for those most affected by the troubles while helping society to look forward. That's what he said when it received royal assent. What's your comment on that? Well, I think I think that there's nobody agrees with him in Northern Ireland on that because all of the political parties, nationalists, unions, the alliance, independents, they all disagree. They all say the legacy bill is wrong. 
all of the victims groups, and we've met the victims groups to, uh, from from all sides in the north. They're all against it as well. So he has no. The only place he has support for this is in the lobby of the of the establishment, particularly the army establishment in in, in Westminster, and it's to suit his own people over there that he's he's doing this. And it's it's very divisive, and it's a denial of fundamental human rights, and it's a breach of the European uh, Convention on Human Rights, which Britain has signed up to, and that's why we have to go to the court uh, to, to insist that those rights are vindicated by the British government, who have upheld them. And it's not so much that if a court case takes place that 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 the perpetrator is found guilty, you know, like you know, as you know, there's a there's a shorter term in prison for those people now than there would normally be. And accepting that they are in advanced age and a lot of people's memories have, have, have got worse over the years. But it's the accountability, it's the conviction, it's the fact that the families know that the perpetrator, who that person was, what they did, and that there's nothing hidden. And that all of those files which, um, which haven't been seen yet or are still being examined by policemen and so on, uh, you know, that they will they will have their day in court. Okay. And that's what people are entitled to. And that's what they want. And that's what we must indicate. Okay, Deputy, just before I let you go, perhaps I might get you to comment in relation to what has been described as the fascist scenes outside Leinster House during the week where a group of about 200 far-right individuals protested, heckled, and by all accounts assaulted individuals, both politicians and members of staff of the Iraq that's going in and out or trying to get in. Where is this going to end, do you think, or what should we be doing to stamp out this right, the rise of the right? Well, I think what is absolutely true is that people have a right to protest, but to a peaceful democratic protest. Uh, and I think the proposal that I would support would be that they would move back some distance, not a thousand miles, you know, 200 yards or whatever, from Leinster House, and they can have their protest there. But if it's not peaceful, you know, they, you know, and I mean if they attack, assault, you know, people, that, that, is, that is for the courts to deal with and the guardee. Um, I think we have to balance it. You know, we can't say nobody can come near Leinster House uh, for half a mile. Uh, but, but, but we have to make sure, and I want to stress this, uh, I met two staff members, two, two female staff members who were in tears because of the abuse that they got from these people, because it was an object thrown at them. They just, you know, they just couldn't couldn't believe what happened and how angry and how wrong what these people were doing to them and, and to politicians generally. Um, so I think, I, think, uh, I think we have to be practical. Uh, we have to stop this. We have to prosecute those who committed, who broke the law. But at the same time, we must still leave the space for a safe and a peaceful protest. Uh, but but uh, we must be able to go in and out to work, and our staff must be able to go in and out to work without being abused, assaulted, or intimidated. Funagel, Deputy Fergus O'Dowd, speaking to me just before coming on air. Michael Reed on LMFM. Welcome back to the programme. Liam Herrick is the Executive Director with the Irish Council for Civil Liberties and joins us online this morning. Liam, thanks for taking our call and I suppose we're talking to you in the context of what we witnessed outside the Doyle and for that matter, the calls for a ring of steel to be put around Leinster House, particularly coming up to Budget 2024, to protect those going in and out of their day's work at the houses of the Oireachtas. Uh, Liam, no one for a moment disagrees with one's right to protest peacefully, but what we witnessed was fascism. Well, Alan, I wouldn't disagree with you. Um, I mean, 
there is a constitutional right to protest, um, but it is a right to peaceful protest. And there's a long line of case law in the Irish courts and in the European Court of Human Rights, which explains what that distinction is. You know, your right to protest is a very important democratic right, and it's quite strong in Ireland. Um, You don't have to get permission from the guards to protest. And in terms of the limits of what you can do, there's quite broad license given to people. You know, you you can protest, you you can be rude, you can be provocative, um, you're entitled to cause a, a level of disruption. And we've seen some very large protests by farmers, trade unions mm. and others that have caused very significant disruption. But that's all seen as being part of democracy. And I think that that's right and good. Um, but it is a right to peaceful protest. And what the European Court of Human Rights has said that, you know, if a, a protest is violent in its intent and is aimed at calling, causing public disorder, then you do not enjoy that right. And, uh, you know, you, you, you have to take into account the rights of okay. others as well. So I think what happened on Wednesday clearly crossed that line. There was very obvious evidence of significant levels of violence. And it was clear that many of the people there, perhaps not all, but a significant proportion, were, on ten, were intent on uh, causing violence to other people and disrupting our national parliament. And that manifested itself in the fact that 13 people were arrested, a number of people were before the courts and more will be appearing before the courts at a later date. However, on the basis of what we had witnessed outside our Houses of Parliament, surely we have to take significant and substantial measures to protect not only those going in and out of Leinster House, but the very heart of our democracy. Well, Let's just look at the bigger picture, I think, Alan. You know, we have protests outside Leinster House, government buildings, public places in Dublin, on O'Connell Street, all the time. For many, many years, we've had significant protests, sometimes tens of thousands of people. And sometimes there has been disorder around the edges of them, and sometimes the guards have had to make arrests. But by and large, we have a very healthy situation in this country, where the guards have an obligation to facilitate protests, and by and large, they do that very well. I mean, there's times when we would have been critical of the policing of certain protests, and sometimes we feel the use of force has been excessive, and there's been other instances where people feel the guards perhaps haven't done enough. But overall, this makes our democracy healthy, vibrant, and strong. Now, the situation is that the guards have to manage that, and it's a difficult task, and it was a very difficult task on Wednesday, And there will be a review and the guards certainly, I think, will consult with Leinster House Security to see if they need to prepare in slightly different ways for maybe the budget or other events. But I think it's a whole different thing to say that we change we change the rules for everybody, you know, that we... Well, well, we take away that right that is enjoyed by peaceful protesters all the time just because of the actions of a very small number of extremists. That aside, would you not accept, and I'm sure you've witnessed this yourself on your travels, that when we look at other countries and the Houses of Parliament and the uh, institutional uh, buildings and structures, they are all very well guarded, more so than we have witnessed here in our own country. And I'm sure there's armed guardy and uh, around Leinster House in some shape or form. But there's still only a couple of guardy outside the place. It should be better secure than it is at the moment, should it not? Well, I'm, I'm really not sure, Alan. I mean, if you look at what the outcome of Wednesday was, um, 
the guards, you know, succeeded in protecting um, all the people that were there, the, the journalists, the politicians, the staff, from serious injury. And they also prevented these extreme groups from, from entering Leinster House. Now, what, what I think is, is the, the unfortunate aspect is, is that for a period of time, there was a difficulty in people getting in and out of the building that were entitled to be there to represent their constituents. And I think there might be a review of how we can secure that. But what I'm hearing from politicians all of the last couple of days is that they do not want to lose the contact with the people that we have in Ireland. It is a really valuable part of our democracy that our national parliament is accountable to the people, it's open to the people, and and protesters can actually make their point directly in front of the national parliament and meet TDs and senators going in and out. When I was up at Leinster House yesterday, there was a couple of small protests outside there. There was one, Grandmothers Against Racism. There was another one, which was about Irish neutrality. And they were chatting casually with TDs and senators and journalists as they came in and out. And that's the way that it should be. So I I would not um, believe that one incident justifies a a real changing in our approach to our democracy. But do you not accept, however, that there is a cohort there, albeit small, that are trying to disrupt, they're trying to undermine, they're trying to undermine the state? And they shouldn't be allowed to do that. No, I, I, I don't disagree with that, Adam, but I, I, I think that there are ways in which that can be dealt with short of changing our democratic structures. And I, I think the groups that were involved in Wednesday, and you know, there's a lot of analysis in the papers yesterday and today about exactly who they are, but it is very clear that the people that were leading the events on Wednesday in Kildare Street and at Marion Square are the same people that have been leading protests at libraries where they've been harassing staff and at refugee and migrant accommodation. Right? So we know who these people are. The guards know who these people are. The guards have been accumulating intelligence on them for some time. And they are very small in number. And the guards are now applying the criminal law to these people. And it is very possible that that is an appropriate and effective response to deal with them. Uh, I think the, the bigger concern really is that these people are spreading quite exotic conspiracy theories online and also in person with the purpose of recruiting people who might be impressionable or perhaps have been disillusioned in some way. And I think there is a lesson there in terms of how we regulate social media and also how public figures, you know, flirt with these kind of groups, uh, give them amplification. I, I think that there are lessons there in terms of how they build up a support base. Yeah, okay, and I want At to the ask day, you... The leaders are small. Yeah, I want to ask you that question. Do we in the media have a responsibility, albeit it is our job to report on what is happening in the world outside our studios, that we should turn yeah. a blind eye to this sort of stuff because by giving them publicity gives them oxygen and feeds into their narrative? I, and I think this is a very difficult balance for everybody. And it's a difficult balance, in fairness, Alan, I think, for the guards as well. I mean... You've heard the Garda Commissioner speaking previously about some of these protests at refugee centres and he, he has talked about how the fact that the guards have a strategy where they don't want to give some of these groups the confrontation and the arrests that they want because they'll use that for building support. And, and that, that is a logical approach in some situations, 
But there will be other situations like Wednesday where a different policing approach is, is necessary. And I think the same is true of the media. I think that the media are in a difficult bind with this because they don't want to give too much oxygen to groups that really have very little public support. But at the same time, it is important to explain to the public who these people are, what they're trying to achieve, because otherwise I think there's a danger that members of the public who, for example, might have legitimate concerns on public policy questions like education in schools or immigration or whatever it might be, legitimate concerns that they are entitled to express might be taken in by some of these groups who actually have a much more destructive agenda. You know, So I, I think that balance is difficult. It's complicated. But, but I do think that as long as we're having a national conversation about these issues, the vast majority of people in Ireland and the vast majority of people in the media are acting in good faith and, you know, have respect for the opinions of other people. These people on Wednesday clearly don't. Mm. Liam, let me ask you, are you of the opinion that there are external influences at play here, as in they're merely puppets of a puppet master elsewhere? I don't know about a puppet master elsewhere, but, I mean, it's quite crude that most of the messaging is cut and paste from the United States and, to an extent, from Britain. You know, like literally the slogans that they are chanting and putting up and recruiting online are things that they are adopting directly from the U.S. Uh, When you look at, for example, the harassment of library staff, the suggestion, like, you know, it's such an absurd idea that the staff, the highly professional expert people who work in our public libraries, public servants of the highest ethical standing, that these people are involved in some sort of conspiracy to harm children is so absurd. But this has been developed in the United States and has led to assaults against library workers in the US. It's a a conspiracy theory which is so ridiculous, and yet it's getting some traction here. And the, the same we heard again on Wednesday, the suggestion that the Irish government is in some sort of conspiracy with exotic hidden forces internationally, not just the government, but all of the politicians across all of the parties. That's, again, a kind of QAnon stuff that's been trialled in the US. So these people have no imagination. You know, they're cutting and pasting what they're seeing people doing in the US, but they know that you can radicalise people online by doing this. They know that there's vulnerable people out there that will consume these kind of messages. And, And I think they do need to be exposed and debunked for who they are. Liam Herrick, Executive Director with the Irish Council for Civil Liberties. Thank you for joining us this morning. Michael Reed on LMFM. Welcome back to the programme. If you want to text or WhatsApp us, you can do so on 086 658. Well, round about 14 minutes or thereabouts, the uh, Gotha Commissioner will meet with members of the uh, Gotha Representative Association to try and resolve issues in relation to rostering. A new roster is going to be introduced by the end of November, according to the Commissioner, Drew Harris, regardless of what the GRA thinks. Now, the brief meeting yesterday to discuss potential solutions to that problem. One was direct intervention by the Workplace Relations Commission. That's not going to happen, according to the GRA, so other things are being discussed. But in light of that, um, we're joined by Kevin Meehan, Sinn Féin Councillor and Member of the Joint Policing Commission in Dundalk, who's going to be sending a letter to the Commissioner in protest against changes to that roster. And Councillor Meehan joins us this morning. Kevin, uh, thanks for taking our call. What are you putting in that letter to the Commissioner and why are you sending it? Uh, first of all, it's come up with a joint policing committee, but uh, these are res- uh, 
there are sure points that have been raised and there are uh, views that have been held for the last wee while and, and concerns in regards to how this will impact on the ground in, in areas like Dundalk. Uh, we, are prob- we are going to lose somebody from the, our, policing, our community policing section and uh, I believe also the drugs uh, drug squad will be impacted too. In terms of the community policing section, uh, that's something I've seen from this very inception back and we have the more and that's back to the early 90s uh, and I would say up until now it's probably at its best uh, and for me it's a sort of unforced error to actually remove the person that is going in particular in this case uh, because like for, for in terms of community policing that's something you have to build upon so we have now got a team that's there uh, very reliable uh, very interactive with, with, with not just with community groups but actually a layer beyond that going into and, and are known on first name terms with mm. many residents in some of our some of our hardest police areas for want of a better word Okay Kevin and, can I uh, just ask you in relation yeah. to what you've outlined there the loss of services if this yeah. ro- roster is implemented are you going on hearsay or is this factually going to happen oh, on the ground? Factually, yeah this is going to happen I, I, we, we are going to lose one member at least one member from the community police and uh, we, uh, we we know who that person is, and that person will be a, a massive loss to the community policing section. As I say, we we and and, and that's as I say, that person has been there for quite a while, uh, has built up relations on the ground with not just with community groups, but and residents associations, but actual individuals as well, people that would come across his attention, and uh, he's will have a huge impact, and that's just one of the many impacts that this will have. Okay. Perhaps you can give us an idea of the difficulties faced in Dundalk in relation to antisocial behaviour, crime, particularly at a local level, in the current regime and how that will change if this roster is implemented. I would say probably one of the most significant things is we, from say from a Garda Youth Diversion Project, from from taken from now, uh, the community guards will have a huge input into that. A lot of the crimes are committed are committed by by young people who are now under the well under the age of eighteen, and some of the most serious crimes are coming from people under the age of eighteen. So crime has shifted from from your normal gang leaders being way over in their thirties now into younger younger uh, younger adults. And uh, the, the, community, the community policing team would have a fairly good knowledge in terms of, of who they're dealing with and working with. And it all ties in. They, they, they blend in well with both the council, blend in well with both community groups in the area. And, and a key to that would be this individual, for, for, in this case, you know, who would have a knowledge of what's going on on the ground in terms of like what we have at the moment, we've drugged out intimidation of young people. We've young people being coerced into crime by other young people maybe over a drug debt and then there I have to go walk off the debt by attacking somebody's house or going collecting money or intimidating other people at, uh, older people at doors looking for money off off their sons and daughters and uh, it's, like, it's like a chain reaction or a chain event where as I say if you have one young I, I, in particular I've, I know one young person who would have uh, a lot of coercive control over many young people in the area and uh, some of them young people would go to somebody like this guard and this guard that we're talking about now would go to them and confide in this person. As I say, if you take that away, that's that's a huge loss to to, to the area. I say, and some of the crimes that we're talking about, it says it mostly in around drug down intimidation. Uh, what we did seen years and years ago would have been the anti-social, the more public anti-social in terms of uh, public drinking and a lot of that. That has sort of died away because the the whole 
drug scene has sort of changed. Okay, so Kevin, can I just can I just yeah. ask you, and not pointing the finger at the Gardaí, yeah. because it's not their job uh, to a certain extent, because there's so many other moving parts to keeping law and order. But are you facing a situation in Dundalk where it's becoming lawless? No. No, I don't think so. I, I, I think we have issues there. Uh, I, I would have full confidence guards at the moment, so I wouldn't say that. I say, yeah, it's been, it has, the, the changes always, the, the, the crimes always seem to change, or, or the, the, as I say, the landscape changes in terms of criminality. That, that, that happens. As I say, it's changed now. It is difficult. As I say, it probably involves more younger people now. As I said, the, the, the type of gangs that are roaming about now are not, as I say, they're, they're a lot younger. And, and and that's where community policing kicks in because they're the ones on the ground. They're the ones linked into community groups and youth groups who know and see where the potential uh, next generation of, of people coming up who who maybe end up getting caught in the crime trap. And can I ask you, Kevin, do you get exasperated when you hear the Minister for Justice pumping in, I think it was in the region of €10 million Euro for overtime for Garthi to police the streets of Dublin because there was a number of serious assaults in the north part, northern part of the city? But it seems... You know, it's not just happening in, happening in Dublin, it's happening everywhere, but you don't seem to be getting the resources that the capital city is getting. Yeah, yeah, you would feel frustrated. And I know other people have mentioned this to myself, and I do see that. Uh, what, what, what I will say is, well, we do see some, some more of a, well, but because of the nature of social media, you see a lot more of it now. It's not to say it didn't happen in the past, but there's a lot more of it happening. I, I grant you that. But as I say, we see it, we see it more because people share it, they capture it on the phone, and it's circulated. So every day, somebody on the phone will be sent some type of fight or row or somebody attacking somebody, uh, and that's that's common. And, and as I say, it's, it's, a, it's a lot more out there because of the use of social media. Uh, yeah, we would all love to see the resources that that Dublin City Centre would get. And uh, as, as I say, it's 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 a hard one to call, but I would I would definitely think that uh, people would be annoyed in terms of seeing what they get, and then you see instances at the, at the say on on the Wednesday at the courthouse where you see lots of uh, arguing and shouting and uh, public displays mm-hmm. of antisocial behaviour. Let me ask you finally, Kevin: Is it fair to say that under the present regime of the roster, you're just about keeping the lid on a very dangerous situation, and if things change? things might get ugly. Yeah, yeah, they always have the potential of getting ugly. I, I think we were on the right path. I think we need we need more guards. I, yeah, we we definitely do. But we need more. We need more lines of, of what we're doing in terms of community policing. We need a dedicated community policing. We need a lot more of it. As I said, we only really had one person at a time, our small community policing section. Now we have a good vibrant community policing section, which has really integrated itself into the communities and uh, we, can, we can't displace that. We, we, we need to keep that. In fact, we need to encourage more people into that section because that has more of a preventative role on a reactionary role. Very good, Kevin Mean, Sinn Féin Councillor and Member of the Joint Policing Committee in Dundalk. Thank you for joining us. Michael, Michael Reed on, on LMFM. Make Way Day is a campaign that brings the disability and wider community together to consider the needs of people with disabilities in the public spaces. Westmeath County Council and partner organisations in Westmeath Disability Working Group are rolling out Make Way Day across the county of Westmeath and elsewhere. Joining us this morning is Brenda Drum, Head of Communications with the Disability Federation. 
Federation of Ireland. Brenda, thanks for joining us this morning. Um, I would have thought that we have become better as citizens to make the plight of those with disability, uh, suffering from disability, um, a little bit better, given we are compelled by Europe to introduce certain directives around that. Good morning, Alan. Thanks for the opportunity. Yeah, you're absolutely correct. Um, you would think at this stage there'd be no need for us to have something like a make-way day, but sadly we are where we are and we find ourselves rolling this out again in 2023. While it is very much a Disability Federation of Ireland campaign, it is something that has been hugely embraced by the you know, locally across the country by, as you said, disability groups, access groups, the county councils get involved our member organisations, and most importantly, by people with disabilities. Um, And I think the reason we still have to have something like Make Way Day is I kind of put it down to something that I call unconscious ableism, where people will park a van or park a car on a footpath and they don't realise the kind of consequences that that has maybe for somebody with uh, using a wheelchair or somebody with visual impairment who often doesn't have the option to do a go-around uh, like those of us without a disability would have. We can we can see the hazard, we can change course. For people with disabilities, it often means uh, a very scary moment. It means people in a wheelchair have to turn back rather than risk going out onto the road. So what um, are we saying? At best, it's oversight on our part. At worst, it's indifference. I think so, yeah. And I think, um, I think there'll always be an education piece because... Um, Personally, I didn't know anything about Makeaway Day up to two years ago. I'd never heard of it. I'd never understood that there need there was a need for it. Um, I'm with the Disability Federation of Ireland a year. It's my second Makeaway Day, and I just it just every day I see it now, and I become aware of it. And the blinkers are off. The 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 unconscious ableist blinkers are well and truly off. And you put yourself into the shoes or into the into the seat of somebody out and about with a disability and every second turn you make there's something there that's in the way and the sort of things that we we do a survey every year it's live now on our website from first thing this morning makewayday.com and we ask people to take this one minute survey if you people with disabilities people who are just doing walks to school or walks to the library or whatever just just put yourself in the shoes of someone with a disability and tell us what you're coming across in terms of obstacles. And the top four that come into us for the past five, six years are the classic cars and vans parked on the footpaths, bicycles, motorbikes changed to lampposts or railings, creating a trip hazard for visually impaired because your bike doesn't often stay the way you park it when you chain it mm-hmm. to a lamppost. Misplaced sandwich boards, um, forgotten bins, piles of recycling on the footpaths and other obstructions. And then a more recent one that's coming into us is kind of overgrown hedging and trees in the locality. And, you know, at the at the least, these are a nuisance. They're, they can upset a person's day in terms of coming across them as an obstruction. But at worst, they are, they can cause injuries. They can cause problems. They have caused problems. We're aware from some of our member organisations, the Irish Wheelchair Association, that they've had reports of people who have been injured because they've tripped or fallen, walked into a branch, walked into a piece of a hedge, poking out. And the, the message that we want to get across this day is that we all have a responsibility to be mindful of what we're doing and how we're behaving in the public spaces that we all share. Um, and it's and it, again, this is about people with disabilities, but you also have to think of older people uh, who have mobility issues. You have to think of m- mums or dads out with the buggies who might have to go down onto the road because a car or a van has left no wiggle room whatsoever 
to go in between the the the, the side of the the van and the wall or the or the the railing. Yeah, but one um, would presume, Brad, we're not uh, outliers when it comes to this. No matter what jurisdiction you're in, you're going to come across yeah. these particular problems. Absolutely, I was in I was in Brussels actually. Um, the, the, you know the seat of the European Parliament, and and I was absolutely horrified when to see the amount of obstacles just strewn everywhere. Really narrow footpaths, um, scooters just literally dropped and fallen over all over the place. Bikes locked, um, you know, uneven footpaths and stuff. So uh, I suppose the, 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 the while this is a one day awareness campaign. We feel every day should be a make-way day. And one of the things that we hope that this, and we think this is starting to contribute to the conversation, is that it comes down to universal design planning. And it's so important that you have, like, I'm not, like, I don't consider myself to be a disability expert because I'm not a person living with a disability. Anyone who's planning something, building something, constructing something, regardless of what you're reading about on paper or the guy, whatever, get a person with a disability into the room with you. Talk to them. Really listen to what they're saying because universal design benefits all of us in the long run. Yeah, but and we are compelled by law, European law yes, and our own are. laws of the land that we have to ensure that any building is fit for purpose yes. in terms of the requirements of people with disabilities. That's true, but it's, it's, it's I mean, Ireland ratified the United Nations Convention on the Rights of Persons with Disabilities five years ago. Uh, it, the implementation of it has been very slow. We've seen a recent advertising campaign all about the- Say hello to a new era of mental health care. Cerebral is here to help you achieve your mental wellness goals with professional therapy and medication management support. 100% online. You'll experience the all-new Cerebral way, an innovative approach to mental wellness designed around you. You'll get a personalized treatment plan from a therapist, prescriber, or both in a safe and judgment-free space. Your cerebral therapist or prescriber will outline a customized plan with clear milestones along the way, so you can get to feeling your best. With Cerebral, you're not alone in your mental health journey. We're here to empower you to live a fulfilling life. So take that first step towards a brighter future and sign up today at Cerebral.com slash podcast and use code ACAST to get 15% off your first month. Offer only valid on monthly plans. Other exclusions may apply. Offer ends July 31st, 2024. See site for details. UNCRPD, which is basically introducing what the UNCRPD is to people. Um, There's a huge education piece. There's a huge learning piece. If you talk, regardless of what it says in guidelines and laws and rules, if you talk to disabled people and you say, we, we booked a hotel and they told us it was, in, it was um, accessible, but the, the width of the shower door, they couldn't fit their wheelchair through or there was a lip on the step. And this happens all over the world. Um, or you'll find that um, we, had, we had a situation where uh, there was an event taking place and there was no disabled toilet. So they had to hire in a kind of a, an outside portaloo that had that was disability access. You shouldn't have to leave a building if you're at an event. No, but then there's recourse recourse to the yeah. authorities to get them to understand why it's the case yeah. and to and I change. Think that's one, yeah, I think that's one side of the coin. I think the other side of the coin is personal responsibility because um, the the person driving the van or the car, they what we're trying to do as well with Make Way Day. I mean, obviously we follow all those other routes of recourse, and we refer people and we encourage people. And people with disabilities are well able, and they're well used to having battles and fights and having to report stuff. What we're saying with Make Way Day is it's about widening out this 
conversation to the to the whole community to say the footpaths belong to everybody, that access for all of us and access particularly for people with disabilities is one of the most basic rights. Um, and we're saying that just by that being a little bit more conscious or a little bit more aware of all our behaviour, we can improve the, I suppose, the access and the ability of people with disabilities just to participate fully and wholeheartedly in their community. And that in itself is something that's underpinned by the, by the, you know, the UNCRPD. One thing I just want to mention with you, and you may be able to bring a degree of clarity to this, and it seems to be a grey area around visually impaired people bringing dogs into restaurants, into supermarkets. What is the law pertaining to that? I wouldn't be an expert when it comes to, to guide dogs. Um, I can happily check it up for you, <coughs> excuse me, and come back to you, but it does seem to be a bit hit and miss. It, the onus is really... Yeah. It seems to be the experience is really positive, really brilliant pockets of excellence, but again, uh, there seems to be resistance. Uh, and again, I think it's an education piece around what, for all of us, uh, on what what is, what's allowed and what's acceptable. And I also think that, the, you know, you see this, you see this hashtag kind of be kind trending a lot of the time on social media. And I think if a lot of us kind of used this, actually, you know, took it on board and just try and make the, someone's day a little bit easier rather than trying to put, put obstacles in their way or blocking them from accessing. And it's the same. Another issue that comes up as well is for uh, for people who use guide dogs, people who have guide dogs, people who have wheelchairs, is people who don't type, clean up after their own dogs on the street. And the next thing you have... Uh, you know, a person with a guide dog being walked through it because the dog doesn't, you know, doesn't understand yeah. to avoid it. So again, it's it's there's there's two sides of a coin. There's the enforcement, there's the education, there's the law. But the other side, I think, is just a little bit of personal responsibility and under trying to understand, just not to put obstacles in the way of 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 people and and just to park properly, lock stuff properly, and tick in your bins or put them in okay. a way that they're not taking up the whole footpath. Very good. Brenda Drum, Head of Communications with the Disability Federation of Ireland. Thank you for joining us this morning. I want to get to a couple of your comments because I don't want to be running out of time because there's quite a few to get through this morning. Uh, they all seem to centre around the Dáil protest. Pat from Balbriggan. On the story of the trouble outside the Dáil during the week, if the Gardaí can identify those who are violent in their protests and if they are in receipt of social welfare payment, then they don't, don't the guards get together with the social welfare and have their payments stopped. Don't think that's going to work. Tommy says he doesn't condone what happened in the Dáil during the week, but he does believe that people are very dissatisfied with the government's performance. The main political parties are very disconnected from the general public and they don't understand the issues that people are concerned about. Tommy says that he has developed a new approach to voting. If they don't call to his door, then they don't get a vote. At the last elections, none of the main parties came to the door. He believes that the main parties stay away from the public because they don't want to hear people complaining. He knows several other people who have developed this approach to voting. Finally for now, around the Dole protest again. Tom says the protesters here, when compared to France, Italy or Holland, are very weak. But the Irish people are horrified, asking how could they? People are angry at the very privileged, highly paid servants of the state who can, at a drop of a hat, get a pay rise while the rest of us just suffer. Tom says he'd expect more and bigger protests in the months ahead. 
LMFM. The Garda Representative Association is meeting with the Garda Commissioner Drew Harris this morning after what was described as a brief and direct engagement with the Commissioner yesterday. In a statement following that meeting, the GRA General Secretary rejected the option of immediate involvement with the Workplace Relations Commission, saying the GRA has consistently stated that they do not believe internal negotiations have been exhausted. Now, the statement went on to say that they were considering the merits of an alternative option of internal national discussions as suggested at that meeting. So joining us this morning is um, Pat Barry, former detective inspector and now private investigator and author of The Making of a Detective. Pat, thanks for joining us. I want to deal with the GRA and other matters as well, but if we can just stick with the GRA just for a moment, because that meeting is probably still ongoing with Drew Harris at the moment. And if you look at the position adopted by Drew Harris, he's not for budging come the end of November, nor the GRA. Where would you expect this to end? Uh, I would expect that both of them will see sense and they'll have to come up with a compromise, I'd, I'd imagine. And I reckon uh, the, the compromise will be something like on the lines of, look, if we're going to keep the uh, same shift system that's in operation now, but only for certain units, maybe for those uh, in uniform and on the ground. But the uh, shift system may change for other specialised units or detective units or this, that and the other, you know. And, and, and in that way, maybe the GRA will get their uh, bit of kudos and in the other way, the commissioner we can say that, look, you know, he, he has uh, compromised and, you know, so look, I think that's where it'll end up. But uh, the only way to be resolved is sitting down talking, both of them, like, you know, because um, that is the only way forward, like, you know. Let me ask you this in relation to the overwhelming vote of no confidence by rank and file members uh, in the Garda Commissioner Drew Harris last week. If this were the private sector and a CEO got that overwhelming vote of no confidence, he'd have no choice but to walk away. What's going to happen to Drew Harris? Well, Drew Harris, as people know, has been appointed there by the government. So the government are not going to come along no. and say, look, you've got to pack your bags and go. They're not going to say that. They're going to say, look, we believe in you. We believe what you're doing and we're behind you. And they have no other choice but to do that. Um, it's a bit like the football yeah, manager. We have every yeah, confidence look, in your is, ability. Yeah. yeah, but like, is it a case of uh, now it was a mistake to have him there in the first place? Like, you know, uh, look, um, I guess previous commissioners didn't do themselves any good, like, you know, and... I don't know. Look, it's it's just that's the situation that exists. He said he's going to stay for the two years and he's going to bull on, and that's it. Um, I'd be concerned. Like you know, I just I don't know this whole new policing strategy in respect of rosters and how now the job is going to be run. Maybe to um, account for more accountability within the force. Like you know, I don't know whether it's going to advance anything or not like you know i mean i think the system that was there was quite good it just needed manpower like you know uh, and that was it and just to give you an example and the the, the loud division when i was there it needed a, a complement of 13 inspectors to cover the uh, the managing of units and stations and when i was there at one stage there was only two uh, inspectors and I was, let's say, in plain clothes, and there was only one uniform inspector in Dundalk. So how, on God's name, can you run an organisation when manpower is that low? It's just not possible. But if the manpower had been there, 
there would be no uh, re- there would be no reason to change rosters or to change. You know, there would have been enough of inspectors to account for the accountability that would be required for running an organisation like Angarda Shirkana. Do you so get the sense, um, Pat, that we may be having a conversation around blue flu like we had back, I think it may have been, oh, towards the late yeah, 90s? Yeah, you remember know, those yes, days. Yes, Will it happen I, I again? I do, I'd look at I'd hate to see anything like that. And the thing about it is that I know the guards, I know guards on the ground, they don't want this type of carry-on. They just want to be treated uh, with a bit of degree of respect and listened to in respect of their, uh, let's say, their rosters and the, their working... Uh, life you know and they want to make things as easy as as for themselves to do the job as professionally as possible and they're not into we want to go on strike or we want to go on a blue flu we want to do this or we're going to do but like there are avenues where you know the GRA can say well look we're not going to do overtime there's going to be a ban on overtime and if there's a ban on overtime well there's your operation in O'Connell Street down the Swanee for starters like you know so what I'm saying is that there are options there for you know the GRA and that to, to, to take you know um, but nobody wants to see that they really don't like you know but um, I just hope the commissioner sees sense and the GRA sees sense and they, they come to some sort of a okay. compromise like you know that's that's where I think where it'll end up you know Okay Pat do you believe we have to have a rethink around how we police protests in light of what happened outside the door the other day Well protests I've been uh that guard with my nose at the at the cold face of protests on several occasions and when I was in Donnybrook I remember we were called into the city centre and many a time to make up the numbers when there were students protests and protests about everything else uh, and uh, I, I just in, in, in recent years and you know up to last Wednesday there I, I've seen that these protests have become a lot more nasty and disrespectful and disgraceful like and there's a viciousness and a, 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 an aggressiveness and an angeriness about them that like leads to people believing that they can do what they like and you know abuse politicians and abuse the guards and all that type of stuff um, uh, and that has to be stamped out like you know like I'm all for uh, protest like you know I mean if you have an issue and you, have a, you can protest and have your signs of protesting once it's peaceful and that you know uh, this I, I seen it there on the TV they had mock gallows like you know you know sort of uh, you know they wanted to hang politicians and it's like it's some sort of uh, do you know what I mean it's a, it's a nasty um, uh, what's it pointing the finger at politicians and this that and the other we all like you know we, we all have our our, our uh, you know, not all of us believe in, in, in what politicians may say uh, the decisions are made, but you have to respect democracy and you have to respect that. And if people are coming and challenging that in a very deliberate, uh, vicious nature, they have to be stamped out. And the only way you can make a change is in the ballot box, like, you know, mm-hmm. when it comes to... Do, do you think, therefore, that, think, that, you know, that, that politicians in Garthy are justified by talking about a ring of steel around Leinster House, particularly coming up oh. to the budget? Should they do it? Oh, ring, ring of steel. No, I think myself that uh, protests that are planned, the guards have to plan and have a strategy of how they're going to deal with them if they become unruly. And what strategy do we have? And what powers have we got? And which they have plenty of powers to make arrests under the Public Order Act and all of that. And they can move in and arrest these people and take them away and get them before the courts. And if that's done enough of times, it'll put a fair hole in, 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 in the 
aggressive nature of, of protest, you know. But uh, uh, the guards are, and as I always say, the, like you know, having been part of the guards and like you know, the, and then worked with some great people, and they have uh, you know people there who are great at uh, making up operational orders and putting plans in place. Like you know, we've seen it there for the Queen's visit, for Joe Biden's visit. We've seen it for you know every concert in that's in mm-hmm. Park or whatever. Like you know, the guards are very good at organising and putting their heads together and coming up with a strategy and a plan. And it should be no different to protests. Okay, Pat, can I ask you then, another issue which seems to be at pretty much at the top of the agenda of the GRA is retention in the force. And one can understand when you look at those protests and what the rank and file member has to put up with almost daily, that you would ask yourself, why in the name of God would I want to get into this particular force? Yeah, well, that's true. Look, I know a guy who are serving at the moment. I was talking to a guy during the week there, and he has three years to do, and he says, Pat, I can't wait to get out. I can't wait to get out. Just going to keep my head down for the three years, and the first day I have to get out, I'm gone. He said it has absolutely changed. Morale is on the floor. There doesn't seem to be much leadership. It's all a, it's a joke, he said, and, and it's a, you got out at the right time, he said, you know, before before really nosedived, but he said it's really bad, you know. And three months ago, four months ago, a girl rang me that I worked with. She had 15 years service done, and she said, I wanted to get your advice. I'm thinking of leaving the guards. And I said, God, you've only, yes, you have 15 done, and I have 15 to do, and I can't do another day. And I says, why not? She said, Pat, it's got so bad. The amount of administrative work we have to do, the amount of work that's piled up, um, I just can't do it. And my health, I find my mental health, it's, it's been affected. And I can't just do it anymore. I just can't do it. And she was asking me how I managed in retirement and all this, that and the other, you know. And I told her, look, I think it out and, uh, you know, talk to people and see them. You might get moved or you might get a transfer. You might this, that and the other. She said she tried all that and didn't get any joy. And she says, I, I, I'm making up my mind to leave. She rang me a couple of weeks later and she said, I, I left. I put in my, put in my uh, papers to leave. And I worked with that girl, and she was on some of my investigations, and she was a fantastic young woman. And, you know, I just think, what a loss, like, what a loss, like, you know. But look, that's just the way, they're just examples within that they okay. give you firsthand, you know. But um, it is a, a, an area of concern for politicians and Drew Harris and the organisation. And I believe you have to make the job attractive. And if you pay in people that are training in Templemore 150 euro a week or 200 euro a week, whatever it is, very low anyway, people are going to say, flip that, like, I'm not going to be sure. That's not, I can't live on that, like, you know. And, and, and that's it. So you have to make it attractive. And if now they're trying to raise the, the age level, level to upwards of 50 years of age to join, which is a very good idea because you'd have people with a life experience of joining the guards who can bring a lot more to the, to the table, like of policing. And they have, they may have children in college. They may have mm-hmm. a mortgage. You know, so these people have. You know, you can't. You have to. You have to look at this in a realistic manner, like you know, and can, pay the people. Can I ask you, um, Pat? Before I let you go, and time's running out on me. Are you working mm-hmm. on a second book at the moment? I am uh, working on a second book. Uh, myself and a, a well-known journalist, Robin Schiller writing a book at present and uh, our publishers 
uh, believe, uh, Atlantic Books in London, uh, believes that they would have it on the shelves next May. Well, don't keep so, us in suspense now. Are you going to give us an insight into what the book is about or well, give it all the, away? The book, well, the book is about the solving of Adrian Donoghue's yes. murder. Tragic, uh, tragic story. Oh, absolutely. And there's a lot of... Uh, I think, uh, you know, when we sold or set out our stall to the publishers and what we could bring to the book, they were very, very excited and very, very uh, interested and gave us a contract to write the book, like, you know, so we have it fairly well on. We have to have it on their desk by the 31st of October. And uh, we're we're on track. Yeah, we're on track, you know, and I hope people will find it interesting and you know, am, am I correct in saying, Pat, that no one else is before the courts in relation to this? We saw the last of it there, was it a couple no, of weeks no, ago? No, there's nobody else. Yeah, yeah, just there uh, two weeks ago. Um, two, two, uh, two of the persons we had suspect for taking part in the robbery uh, were found not guilty before court, a special yeah. criminal court. One of them was found guilty of actually stealing the car that was taken in, in our head that was used in, in the crime, you know. So look... Just, just Pat, um, I don't want you to give anything away in relation to the book, but can you give us a quick insight into the... Uh, breath and level of investigation that went into that murder? Yeah, well, it was the biggest murder investigation ever undertaken in the States. Uh, and I know because I've done quite a number of murders. And the, let's just give it to your listener. The average murder will generate approximately 250 lines of inquiry, roughly. Uh, Adrian Donahue's, uh generated 6,000 lines of inquiry. We see so much CCTV that we had to get Dell to build a certain uh, a separate hard drive just to put the CCTV on it so we could manage it. And it could be management, managed and looked at, you know, to see if we derive evidence from it, which we did. But, uh, you know, we took, I don't know, four, nearly the guts of 5,000 statements. Like, you know, it's, it's just uh, unprecedented, like the volume of stuff. And now all that has to be managed all that investigation had to be managed and it had to be managed with with people that I had in specific positions for, you know, my incident room coordinator, my incident room manager, exhibits officer, press officer, like it was on, like, you know, so, um, but they all rose to the challenge and I must say we, 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 we all had a, a, a deep, um, a, you know, sense of respect for Adrian mm-hmm. and we are, and I always said it at my conferences, if one of us had been killed, Adrian would be the person sitting here doing his best for us. Like So just don't never lose. And he was one of us, and he was a guard, and he was, do you know what I mean? But he was a very good member of the public. Like he done so much for uh, junior football, and he was just an all-round good guy, like, you know, a lovely fellow, like, you know. And, am am uh, I correct in saying as well, Pat, in terms of the resolution of this case, it was done pretty speedily in the context of, you know, the crime that was committed and the sheer breadth of that investigation? Yeah, well, what I would say is that, and like, as having been the senior investigating officer, the person in charge of managing and controlling the investigation, the decisions made within any 48 hours after something happened are, are crucial. And the decisions made on the night uh, when I took up uh, were, were crucial, were crucial. And uh, that will be seen through, you know, in, in the book and that, like, you know, and uh, what led us to the person who actually committed the crime, like, you know. OK, but, Pat. Um, there's there's uh, a lot of twists and turns in it and ups and downs. I, I could imagine. It, uh, and we don't want uh, you to give uh, too much away other to no, say no, then you're I, on a I, deadline, I, yeah. what, end of October? Yeah, so like we, we, we our publishers are t- telling us that they, they hopefully will have it on the shelves in May. 
Ah. So uh, I, I will be looking forward to maybe talking to you about it. We'll then be sitting across the table somewhere Alan. having the conversation. Absolutely, Alan, no problem. Listen, good talking to you. You too, Pat. Thanks so much for taking our call. That's Pat Murray, former detective inspector and now private investigator and author of Making of a Detective. Michael, Michael Reed on, on LMFM. LMFM. Over two-thirds of waste in general waste bins could have been placed in the recycling or organic waste bins. Plastics in the general waste bins are also significant for households, 17%, and for businesses, 15%. The Environmental Protection Agency today published the latest National Municipal Waste Characterisation Project. The project results show very little change in Ireland's household and commercial waste management practices since 2018. And Warren Phelan, as EPA programme manager, joins us on the programme this morning. Warren, hands up, guilty, and one of those people who has, from time to time, put waste into the wrong bins, but for no other reason, just bad, bad oversight on my part. Is that the general consensus that you're coming across? Good morning, and, and thanks for having us on the show. I, I think, um, you know, Generally, people have been improving in their segregation, um, but they've improved where they have the ability to do so. So where they have three bins uh, at their curbside, they're able to segregate more of those materials, in particular things like um, food waste, which we see is very dominant in the general waste bin in householders and for businesses. And what we want is for households and businesses to have the ability to separate things like food waste Uh, And that means providing um, brown bins, organic waste bins to households and businesses to make sure everyone has the same level of service. So so, um, in terms of the motivation for people, what we want to see is that pricing and waste charges that are there for households and for businesses are incentivizing the good behaviour. So if if you know that, you know, you're going to be rewarded for doing the right thing, for putting, you know, the recyclables in the recycle bin, your, your food in your organic bin, you know, that's a really strong motivation to, to do that and put the waste into the right bin. Yeah, there also has to be a social responsibility on our part as well to do the right thing for the environment and take time to... And I know that, that the the waste providers will give you a sheet, a card that you hang up and say, you can put this into the brown bin, that into the grey bin and that into the green bin. We need to re-educate ourselves, don't we? Yeah, I, the, the awareness piece is something that needs to happen just ongoing all the time. And there's a really good resource now called MyWaste.ie that provides households and business with really clear instructions in terms of what can go on the bin. Sometimes this can get a little bit confusing. Like in 2021, we moved to put all soft plastics into the recycling bin. So that was a very significant change. And the awareness around that, there was significant awareness, but I think it needs to be much more ongoing to keep informing people. Because what our study showed was that we're still seeing lots of soft plastics. So things like your plastic wrappers that you'd encounter with lots of different foods, plastic bags, even though some of those plastic trays for your fruit and veg, we're still picking up those in the general waste bin. And they can now go all into your recycling bin. So, So I think that awareness piece needs to be there constantly all the time. I think the, the collectors can certainly are there as a helpful resource for businesses and householders, you know, to send checks. So if you're uncertain, uncertain, check, but really most of your plastic packaging can go into your recycling bin now. I know we probably don't want to admit it, but is there a sense of laziness on the part of the consumer as well when it comes to recycling? Um, I don't think so. I think if if we look at the findings from the survey we did on climate change in the Irish mind, that said that 
over 80 people are re- 80 percent of people are really concerned about climate and they want to take the right actions so I, I think people generally are of the mind to do the right thing there can be reasons why it doesn't work out we've touched on some of them the motivation maybe not knowing what to do maybe not having access to the bin such as you know not having an organic waste bin but the big picture here is and why why we kind of call out these specific actions is that currently our municipal recycling rate is 41%. We've signed up to a European statutory target to get to 55% by 2025. So within five years, we have a significant gap to close because we're currently off track. And it it really needs us all to take those steps. And we really need the ability to do that. So the right motivations are there in terms of pricing. You know, the awareness is there so people are clear because there's so many different types of materials mm-hmm. that we encounter. And, and I think we can make substantial progress towards achieving that target if we if we start collectively moving in that direction. One of the worrying, uh, two of the worrying figures that come out of this, 64% of food waste generated by householders is placed in general waste bins with only 32% placed in organic waste bins. That's the first one. The second one is... The latest available waste collectors data indicates only 69% of households have an organic waste bin. Why the yeah. deficit when it comes to organic waste? Yeah, I, I think like looking back, like a, a three bin system has been part of our waste policy for nearly two decades now. That's what the intention has always to, to be, to provide a, a high quality curbside source segregated system and that means everyone having access to a three bin system so i think the data shows that if you give householders or businesses three bins they begin to segregate and you see that movement away from the likes of food waste as you've identified which which it could originally have been in the in the general waste bin moving to the organic waste bin so so food waste is you know it's it's something we all encounter whether it's at, at work or at home I mean, in the first instance, we all want to be trying to be aware and try to reduce our food waste because, you know, any food that we're wasting, we are wasting our own money in relation to that. And then if, if we have unavoidable food waste at home or in work, we want to be able to put that into the, into the brown bin. So you're right in saying the data shows that not all households in the country has a brown bin. And, you know, not all apartments, lots of apartments don't mm-hmm. have it either. And what we want to see is the same level of service there for all households and apartment uh, residents as well. So that everyone has the same opportunity to, to play their part and to contribute to pushing up our recycling rates. OK, just finally, um, Warren, despite those particular anomalies and anomalies in the figures, is the graph going in the right direction? At the moment, it's stagnant. That's really it. it, it it's, you know, our recycling rate has stagnated and our levels of segregation are, are stagnating as well. And we, we, you know, we really need to accelerate our change here. And, you know, of all the things I've touched on today about providing more access for people, providing the right kind of incentives and motivations and, and awareness. And if we can do all of the, those things, it minimises the enforcement need. But there is a role for enforcement there to ensure that, you know, businesses and households are being provided with the right, with, with bins to do the right thing. So there, there's a number of things that actions that have to happen, but I really think we need to keep focused on the recycling target. I think generally people want to recycle, want to do the right thing. You know, we'll often talk about, you know, I do my part. And, and I think collectively we're, we're in the right headspace. We now just have to act in the right way and ensure that, um, you know, we reach that target by 2025. 
Warren Phelan, EPA Programme Manager, thank you for joining us this morning. Michael Reed on LMFM. New research has found that 40% of healthcare workers say they would worry at least a little about drawing blood from a person living with HIV. Findings from a new report entitled HIV-Related Stigma in Healthcare Settings in Ireland found that one in five healthcare workers report using special measures they would not use with other patients. Well, earlier I spoke to the Executive Director with HIV Ireland, Stephen O'Hare. I began by asking him... In general, have attitudes changed where HIV is concerned? To a large extent, I do think we have moved on. So for people listening, HIV is a virus. It's a blood-borne virus. And it is transmitted in a number of different ways. So it can be transmitted uh, sexually. It can be transmitted uh, through blood transfusion. Um, and there can be vertical uh, transmission, uh, from, for example, from, from mother to a child, if, if the mother is, is somebody living with HIV. Um, and there can be, uh, uh, it can be transmitted intravenously. So somebody who, who may be injecting, injecting drugs, um, that, that was a way also that HIV has passed uh, from person to person. Uh, but over the years, <clears throat> uh, the treatment and prevention of HIV has absolutely accelerated. And these days, a person who is living with HIV is most likely to be on treatment. And that treatment is most likely to be suppressing the virus in their system to such an extent that it's undetectable. For the large number of people living with HIV in Ireland, the virus in their system is actually undetectable and can't be transmitted in the ways that I've described. So I think, you know, yes, once upon a time, there was a lot of fear and a lot of anxiety around HIV. But since then, there has been a lot of work to, to allay people's fears and let people know that somebody living with HIV can live a normal, healthy life unaffected by HIV and poses no risk uh, to anybody else. Where I think this research falls uh, is in understanding the latent anxiety that may still exist where people are doing procedures, um, particularly where those procedures perhaps involve, say, drawing blood um, or other procedures which uh, a healthcare worker may feel, um, and, and would be incorrect in thinking this, but may feel that they are at risk. So is it necessary for a healthcare worker to take above and beyond precautions that are already in situ when dealing with somebody who is uh, suffering from the HIV virus? So what we would say, and um, I think it's been long practice in the health services, is that in existing infection control policies and practices that are in place are sufficient to provide protection for patients and protection for healthcare workers. So in those circumstances, there should never be a need for somebody to take extra precautions. And those extra precautions can manifest like double gloving um, or, uh, you know, washing down the, uh, the, the surgery after somebody um, living with HIV has been there, washing down the office after somebody living with HIV has been there or putting somebody to the end of the queue. Those measures are not necessary. And what the report shows is that uh, not only do some people not know that those measures are not necessary, but some people tend to take those measures, and then that impacts the person, the patient living with HIV, uh, who shouldn't be subjected to that kind of additional 
um, precautionary measures, um, which arises really because people don't really understand HIV. Okay, let me talk to you then about the attitudes towards individuals with HIV being expressed by caregivers. Are they positive or negative, or were you able to ascertain that? Well, we were. I mean, largely speaking, um, and again, it's very important to understand, this report was conducted in collaboration with the health services and health, health healthcare workers worked with us uh, on understanding and providing information and uh, thinking about the recommendations that would come out of the report. So, uh, but what we found was there are still some negative attitudes towards people living with HIV. So, for example, a number of people, um, maybe up to 25% of the report uh, indicates uh, would have observed a colleague talking badly about a person living with HIV perhaps once in the last 12 months. So that figure is quite high. And, and while the vast majority of people working in healthcare, um, you know, understand HIV, understand the, the, where, where the science has come, you do still get some of that uh, negativity. Um, maybe sometimes it can be born out of frustration or ignorance or people not having the, the adequate training and education. But nonetheless, it can manifest in that way. And so, you know, the job here is to educate people about HIV, make sure people have the tools they need to understand how to to treat and to engage with somebody living with HIV, and then reduce the the, the negative, you know, the the, the incidence of negativity that arise, whether it's over-precaution or whether it's uh, people having a negative view and expressing those views about people living with HIV. And for individuals living with HIV, do they still feel that sense of stigma? And if they do so, what are the consequences or implications for them seeking help? Well, that's, that, that's, that's really the key, the key outcome of this research. What happens is uh, people living with HIV who are uh, exposed to stigmatising attitudes or stigmatising behaviours, or, or, and, and it can go as far as discrimination, even, even discrimination as prohibited under the law, um, they feel, uh, yes, they feel stigma, and that can uh, transform itself into internalised stigma or shame, feelings of shame. And the outworking is people will avoid seeking health care. So the report shows very clearly that of the people interviewed uh, who are living with HIV, more than half would, would, would say they would avoid uh, um, seeking health care because of the, uh, the stigma and, and shame that may arise uh, or may be put upon them by, by, by health care workers who, who they're um, you know, seeking care from. And that is, um, that's very worrying. And so, you know, while we, while we have come a long way and certainly we see in the report that there is good understanding of the messaging around HIV and the, you know, somebody being on effective treatment, being undetectable and can't pass it on, etc., you know, we are we still there's still a long way to go, and we, we have a lot of work to do to ensure that everybody working in the health services, not just people working on HIV, but everybody working in the health services has a good grasp of HIV, and that you know it's not something that people okay. have fear or anxiety about. There's a couple of figures that jumped out at me. The first one: eighty percent of healthcare workers have not received training in stigma and discrimination. That's uh, that's a pretty high figure. Yeah, it's a high figure. And what, what, what we find is many people, all healthcare workers, will, will have you know gone, gone through their, their, their training to, to become uh, into their role. And in that training, in their, in their undergraduate or in, in, in postgraduate or continuous learning, yes, they will have discussed HIV, they will have discussed infection controls. But 
what we're finding is that people haven't had enough training and education either on HIV or on understanding the stigma and how that manifests itself and the impact that it has. So a lot more work needs to be done to ensure that healthcare workers get access to that training. Now that's the kind of training that HIV Ireland provides to healthcare workers. We've done that for a long time and other organisations provide that training um, around the country to, to healthcare workers and social care workers. But more definitely these figures indicate that more needs to be done. 44% of people living with HIV report being asked how they got HIV by a healthcare worker. Surely common sense should prevail here, knowing not to even venture into that territory. It, it's a common question, and it's a question that uh, people who were interviewed for the survey, people living with HIV, um, repeatedly uh, noted that what's happening when they were going for medical appointments, including routine medical appointments or other medical appointments that had nothing to do with their HIV care or treatment. So being asked that question can be very stigmatising. And not only can it be, you know, a medical, sort of have a medical question or the fear of anxiety around transmission, but, you know, there's also can be a moral judgment attached to that question as well. And HIV has often very much been a sort of a moral judgment issue over the years and we want to try and let go of that but some of it is still persistent and people living with HIV certainly feel that. Finally Stephen just taking this body of research in the round what learnings are you taking from it and more importantly what initiatives need to be put in place to ensure we see either uh, a reduction in these (coughs) excuse me figures or a, a rethink in the manner in which we deal with people living with HIV? Well there's quite a few things I think I think first of all there needs to be adequate policies and guidelines in place in, in healthcare settings to ensure that healthcare workers understand and know about HIV and know about stigma and are in a position to effectively deliver care to people without stigmatising people living with HIV. Um, that comes with a, an aspect of training and so maybe investment in, in training uh, needs to needs to occur and also there needs to be, you know, there's, there's, there's leadership really needs to be in place here. So where there's supervision or management structures um, or whether people are planning hospital or, 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 or healthcare services, it, this needs to be worked in, into, into it in, in a great deal. It's very, very important as well when we're designing any of these things that we're listening to people living with HIV. They're the people who are the experts on their care and on their status. And it's very important that their voice is reflected in in, in the measures we take. So, you know, there's quite a lot we can do to address the lack of knowledge, to uh, to address the, you know, the fear and anxiety. Um, and we need, to, we need to start working on those and we need to put, put those in place. Investment is key, but also knowledge sharing, um, understanding and, and just a little bit more education around HIV and where we've come. Stephen O'Hare, Executive Director of HIV Ireland, joining me earlier on the programme. That's where we leave it for this morning. Back with you on Monday morning, same time. To learn from myself, Alan Cantwell, good morning. The Michael Reed Show podcast. Tune in weekdays from 9 on LMFM. To contact us, email now. Michael at lmfm.ie Botox Cosmetic, out of botulinum toxin A, FDA approved for over 20 years. So, talk to your specialist to see if Botox Cosmetic is right for you. For full prescribing information, including boxed warning, visit BotoxCosmetic.com or call 877-351-0300. Remember to ask for Botox Cosmetic by name. To see for yourself and learn more, visit BotoxCosmetic.com. That's BotoxCosmetic.com.